Watchers. It's the ninth annual Watchers in the Fourth Dimension Season Roundup. With the Watchers crew, Anthony, Julie, Riley, and the other one. With special guest, funny man Art Carney, Charlton Heston, and musical guest, Paul Williams. And now, here's your host, Anthony. Hello, and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And wow, these Pertwee seasons are flying by so quickly, and it's really hard to believe that we're at the end of yet another season. This episode, we are presenting to you our Season 9 retrospective, where we will be looking back at the entirety of the season and evaluating it with a series of award-style categories, a look back at our various scores from across the season, and then finally, we'll answer a few questions from our social media followers. But before we get into that, a quick look back at the mail that we've accumulated since the last time we recorded. The interval has been a little shorter than usual, so there's slightly less mail. Looking back at our episode on the Sea Devils, Richard Elsey asks if we'd consider doing a bonus episode where we review some of the original 70s episodes of The Clangers. (laughs) (laughs) I've watched some of it, so I could do it. Well, if only we'd thought about that when we were actually doing The Sea Devils, the moment has probably passed now. But it is a hilarious idea, so I wish we'd thought of that earlier. So good call, Richard, but sadly, just a bit too late. Our marquee note this episode comes from Nathan Laws, who responded to my mention of his prior comments on Joe, saying, I've been called out, so I will say that I don't think I've made my point clearly. I keep hearing the phrase, all this unit training on your show, so I think there's a misunderstanding of Joe's character and her qualifications. In Terror of the Autons, it's made very clear that she is unqualified to be a unit. The doctor says unit is no place for a trainee, and the brigadier agrees and says that her uncle pulled strings to get her in. The brigadier thinks that the only place for her is as the doctor's assistant. Joe is meant to have had some training, but not the kind of comprehensive training you'd want for a member of unit. Joe's arc, for want of a better term, appears to be that the longer she's with the Doctor, the more she learns and grows, so that she becomes a character who can do useful things in later stories. I just think that it's asking too much from the character, as presented in Terror of the Autons, for her to be immediately pulling her weight. Nathan, I hear what you're laying down, and I don't entirely disagree with you, but I do feel like it was poorly represented on screen. In my opinion, it would have been nice for it to have seemed a bit more natural, and to have seen that growth across season eight rather than a sudden appearance of competency midway through season nine. I think the production team just suddenly realized that they weren't giving her enough to do. I think my biggest problem was in the first season that she was in, it seemed that she was just incompetent. The next season, it was she had nothing to do. And then all of a sudden she became competent. So that was my problem was the arc wasn't very well realized. I don't like her just sitting around on the edges, not doing anything. Senator Laws, we await your two minute rebuttal. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Our friend Adam Wright wrote to us to say that he absolutely loves the Sea Devils because he feels that he has a real affinity for both the Silurians and the Sea Devils and would much rather see them return rather than the Yeti. He goes on to say that he's very excited for the return of the Sea Devils in Jodie Whittaker's penultimate adventure in March. Adam, we're excited for that too, and we look forward to discussing it on the podcast in about 10 years' time. (laughs) 
Finally, and this one was actually posed as a question for the retrospective, but as it's posed to the audience rather than to the podcasters, I felt it was probably better placed as a piece of mail. So Rob Brogan says that he's curious as to why the scene with the sea devils walking out of the sea is the first memory of the show for so many fans that he knows. And he goes on to ask whether or not this is true for other listeners of the podcast. Now, that's not the case for any of the four of us because we're all too young to have watched the Pertwee era when it first went out. But we would love to hear from any listeners who may have similar early memories of the show. Please do write to us. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the mail. As always, we do love to hear from our listeners and you can contact us with your thoughts, comments and questions through Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at at Watches4D or you can drop us an email at Watches4D at gmail.com. As you have just heard, we love reading out your messages on the show. With that out of the way, we'll go ahead and dive right into our Season 9 retrospective. As already mentioned, we'll start with our awards, then look back at the scores, and then we'll go ahead and answer questions gathered from social media. For the awards, we will respond in turn in reverse alphabetical order as always, so Riley answers first, followed by Julie, then Don, and finally myself. And we will go ahead and dive right in with the best and worst stories. As a reminder, the options are Day of the Daleks, The Curse of Peladon, The Sea Devils, The Mutants, and The Time Monster. Riley, over to you. For the best story, I have to go with The Sea Devils. There's something satisfying about the show looking back on what it did before and improving on it. Overall, I think the season is a good season with a lot of fine to very good serials, but there isn't one serial that really stands out as like really spectacular, like a Claws of Axos or Demons. The Sea Devils is the closest one to spectacular. For the worst story, like I said, no serial really deserves to be called worse out of the season, especially when you think back to some of the worst we've had before in other seasons. But with that in mind, Day of the Daleks would be my choice. I enjoyed the plot, and it is the first glimpse of the third Doctor chilling out a bit. But the Daleks were wasted here. The Daleks need to be used sparingly, and this serial will just put them out there for the hell of it. All right. Thank you. Julie? I am actually going to go with the Curse of Peladon as my favorite. It's bizarre. It's out there. We got Alpha Centauri and the Arse Warriors, but I enjoyed it, and I was never bored, and it was short, succinct, and to the point. I actually want to throw out that my runner-up is the Time Monster, which everyone will probably disagree with me on. But again, I was never bored. The only problem was Cronus. <laughs> the worst story, I actually agree with Riley. And it is Day of the Daleks. Really, for me, it was, I almost forgot that the story existed. I even watched it twice because I watched the original and I watched the revamped version. And I still think that it's not very memorable. Therefore, it's my least favorite. Fair enough. Done. Let's say what you think. I feel like I should say Day of the Daleks because I was one of the only ones here that actually enjoyed it because I didn't really care if the Daleks were in it. I liked the story it was told. But I think the best story of this season is the Sea Devils. It does work almost as a reboot of the Silurians, but literally everything about it is better. It's just a fantastic story. For the worst story, I very much agree with Riley in that I don't think there's a really bad story in the entire season. I think the weakest is probably the time monster, but I still enjoyed it. I think much like Julie said, Kronos is the part that really lets it down, <laughs> but it's still pretty darn good. 
Thank you, Don. And you've basically taken words right out of my mouth because my nominations are the Sea Devils for best and the Time Monster for worst on the grounds that I didn't really think there was a worst, like you just said. I thought the Time Monster was a bit of a mess at times. You're right, Kronos did look terrible, but it was a lot of fun. And I did enjoy it, and I don't understand why fandom seems to rate it so poorly in general. So I think The Sea Devils is a lot of fun. It's a rollicking adventure on the high seas, yar, with the Master, the Royal Navy, and as Don said, a reboot of the Silurians, which was a strong concept in itself. It's just executed a little better here. I think this has been a really solid season overall. Don't you wish there were actual pirates in there so that we could say we actually had a good pirate story? That would be amazing. <laughs> just throwing that out there. Then it would have been an eight-parter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see a good pirate story in the future. Holding my breath. Next up, we have best and worst moments, and this can be literally anything from the entire season. Moments that made you cheer or made you groan in disappointment. So, Riley, we'll start with you. In a season where it's clear that the show has decided to soften the Doctor, I believe the best moment is where all doubt about if there was a change going on to his character was removed. I'm referring to the Doctor's monologue about the Hermit to Joe in the last episode of The Time Monster. It's a character moment that gives interesting background information about the Doctor, but also shows that the Doctor using his cleverness to help calm someone he cares about instead of just outwitting a foe. Also, I feel like, strangely enough, this scene was kind of foreshadowed in Day of the Daleks where Joe and Doctor are tied up in the wine cellar. They right there have a moment which, instead of the Doctor being cranky or snide to her, he shows a little bit of softness there too. Worst moment? Well, we just got through watching The Time Monster, which has a bunch of wacky, silly moments, but <laughs> all of those moments, I think, work with some exceptions. They work because they fit together into one wacky, silly hole of a serial. So the worst moment for me is something that was wacky, silly, but completely out of place with the rest of the serial. And I'm talking about the three-wheeler chase in the Day of the Daleks. <laughs> I mean, that was... Oh, like skit comedy had taken over the show. That's how silly it looked. I do look forward, though, if, if that is uh, something that we have seen usually uh, with the third doctor, I do look forward to the third doctor eventually doing downhill skiing or surfing away from monsters in his remaining seasons. <laughs> Only time will tell, right? Julie, best and worst moment. I love how Riley went with something actually meaningful for best moment. I have two options and neither of them are meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> the first is a little bit combined with two and it's gonna be baby and naked benton because <laughs> it's me are you surprised hang on i have to hide my shock for a moment okay go ahead and then the other is just hearing alpha centauri for the first time oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it just was a wonderful thing to hear i mean a little over the top yes is it kind of stupid? Yes. Did I love it? Absolutely. <laughs> so that's what I'll go with his best moments. Sorry, I had to lighten the mood. And worst moment <clears throat> comes to no surprise. Anytime Kronos was on screen. Flying Birdman just didn't do it for me. Okay, done. Best moment. I almost went with what Riley said, but the speech is ruined for me because there's a line he says in there. I laughed when I first heard it too, which makes me think he's lying to Joe to make her feel better. 
it's still well done, don't get me wrong, but my best moments, once again, there are two, and once again, they're kind of stupid. Was the doctor taking the tea for a walk for two seconds in the time monster? <laughs> it's pointless, it means nothing, but it was so absurd in a very absurd serial that it just made me laugh, and I loved it. And the tie for that was the master watching the children's television show I have already <laughs> forgotten the name of and thinking it's real. I loved that. For my worst moment, even though I'm the defender of this serial, the chase on the three-wheelers in Day of the Daleks. <laughs> it's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's really poorly executed. <laughs> and it's not quite funny, and it really just fills up time and you can't wait for it to be over. Yep. It's hard to disagree with that, Don, and I'm going to go in reverse order because I agree with Don and Riley. I think the three-wheeler chase <laughs> is just so poorly executed, more than anything. The idea of having a chase scene isn't a bad idea, but those three-wheelers aren't outrunning a damn thing, and especially not a mob of ogrons. It's just so badly done and really disappointing in what I think otherwise is a pretty good story. And then my best moment, and it's really a series of moments, is just the speeding up and slowing down of time in the time monster, particularly where you have that scene where the brigadier is moving really, really slowly and the doctor's moving a little bit faster. I realize that's probably just the actors slowing themselves down and speeding themselves up, but it looks pretty good. It looks convincing. And I was impressed with how well that was done. So best moment is just a series of messing around with time. Which brings us into our next one, which is for best lead actor. Now, for this, we would normally only pick who we think are truly the leads, which for this season is just John Pertwee as the Doctor and Katie Manning as Joe Grant. If anyone wants to do it, I will allow for you to extend that to the other regulars from season eight. So Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier, John Levine as Sergeant Benton, Richard Franklin as Yates, and Roger Delgado as the Master. So Riley, we'll start with you. I'm going with Pertwee. They changed the character, and he was up to the task. Our lukewarmness that we've had to the third Doctor wasn't personal with Pertwee. He was just acting what the character was like on the page. The writing has shifted, and he showed that he is more than capable to bring a warmth and a charm that is greatly appreciated by me. So, well done. Okay, Julie. I can't disagree with Riley. It's 100% what I was going to choose. I choose John Pertwee, and I choose John Pertwee not just because of the actor himself, but since they've decided to write him slightly differently, I like the third Doctor now. Still doesn't make it into my favorites. Troughton still kind of takes that award. But for this particular season, going to be John Pertwee. Okay, done. So far, we're three for three. I also went with Pertwee for the exact same reasons. All the criticisms I had of the way the character was written were taken care of. And he's playing it a little bit more fun and he's got a twinkle in his eye. And so, got to give it to him. And I think we're a full house. On Pertwee. From my perspective, I agree with everything that's just been said. I think in the previous season, there were some, I want to say, missteps in the way he played it. I think, you know, you, you listen to some of the lines he had and think about how Troughton would have phrased it, and Troughton would have been a bit more almost lightly mocking. And I'm particularly thinking about the line where he talks about meeting Tubby Rowlands in the club. You know, that would have been very sarcastic coming from the second doctor, and Pertwee played that completely straight. And I think that was a miscue in the way he played the part, and he's resolved that. So you've got better scripting, and Pertwee just playing the part a little better and a little more suitably for the role. 
I think this is the season where he's really nailed it. Everyone, we can no longer be accused as being the <laughs> anti-Pertwee podcast anymore. <laughs> All that notoriety we got is now vanished. <laughs> uh, let's hope we uh, we shake that reputation now. Okay, our next category is for Best Supporting Actor. This can be for anyone not nominated as one of the leads. And even though I said I would have allowed you to answer with one of the regulars from Season 8 for Best Lead Actor for Season 9, you can also nominate them here as well. Riley, we'll start with you. I'm going to go with Christopher Cole as Stubbs of the famous Stubbs Cotton (laughs) Duo in The Mutants. He has this wonderful everyman quality to his performance that is really appreciated and a sci-fi story that is as wild as what we saw there's a humor there but also there's something that you can empathize with as his general working stiff just trying to get by so i'm going with him all right julie as usual i have two that's how i roll i really liked wanda Moore as ruth I understand that she was likely put in there as a caricature, but I don't care because the way that I viewed it, the way that she played it, I think that it really showed a strong independent woman, which we sometimes lack in the Pertwee era, especially since there are some episodes where we get zero women other than Joe. My runner up is Stuart Fell as Alfred Centauri because I really got to hand it to him. To be able to act like that the entire time and just make it work. I have to applaud. It is a wonderful job for a ridiculous character. I have to ask, Julia, I know you said Wanda Moore is Ruth, but for Alpha Centauri, are you also nominating Isan Churchman, who did the voice? Or are we just talking about the physical acting from Stuart Fell? I guess it must be both. Yes, we'll go with both. Don. My Best Supporting Actor nomination went to Aubrey Woods for Day of the Daleks. I realized he (laughs) wasn't in that list, which we all know who made that list, because I found him to be a nice, refreshing villain because he didn't really realize he was the bad guy. And I like that. He had charm, yet he was still in his own way kind of evil, and that was really good. And I'm also taking a little side note to nominate a Worst Supporting Actor which was Ian Collier as Mr. Hyde in The Time Monster, because I got such dark place vibes from his acting anytime he was on screen. We're going to go ahead and make that a formal category from next season onwards. Excellent. And my pick here for Best Supporting Actor is also Aubrey Woods as the controller. I thought the way he played it was outstanding. I think he's genuinely one of the best actors that we've had all season. And I loved the character. I don't think he was ever inherently evil per se. He was doing what he could to try and make life as comfortable for humanity as possible under the thumb of the Daleks. And fundamentally, you look at his character versus the gorillas, and they're both trying to do what they think is best. Their goals are the same. It's just a very different means to it. Aubrey Woods wants humanity to carry on as painlessly as it's possible under that regime, whereas the gorilla's aim is to just end that regime and make sure it never happened. And the way he ends his time on this mortal realm by defiantly saying to the Daleks, who knows, I may have helped to destroy you, or words to that effect, was so good. And I really think he was the strongest actor and one of the best characters of the season. So Don agreed. Excellent. Next up, we have our best and worst villain categories. And so we actually have nominations again here. 
For this one, we have the Daleks in Day of the Daleks, Arcturus and Hepesh in The Curse of Peladon, the Master in both The Sea Devils and The Time Monster, The Sea Devils, also in The Sea Devils, and the Marshal and Jaeger in The Mutants. Riley, we start with you. The thing about this is that the question is it's best villain, not best performance as a villain. So that means you don't necessarily have to put Delgado in there. <laughs> yeah. So Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's how you play it. That's how I play it. So for their goofy look and their willingness to wear fishnet dresses, I'm going with the Sea Devils. <laughs> for the worst villain, I'm going to go with the Daleks because they had absolutely no reason to be there. They really added nothing to that story. All right, Julie. So other than the master, because really, can there be any other choice? I actually chose the Marshall and Jaeger in The Mutants. Wasn't my favorite story. I don't even think they had the best reasoning to be the villains. But that man playing the Marshall was so good (laughs) and just a little bit over the top ridiculous. And (laughs) it was something that you could... I think relate to more than some of the others. Yes, because based on British history, you understand what was going on and you understand that this was a man who was holding on to power and something that really happened in real life. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Worst villain? I'm going to have to side against all of you and everyone. I'm going to get backlash and I'm going to get comments on Facebook. I did not like the Sea Devils. I did not like the design. I personally didn't really like the backstory, the motive. It was so much driven by the master as opposed to them. So they were my least favorite. Okay, done. This should be fairly short and sweet. My Hmm. best villain, I once again went with the controller in Day of the Daleks for all the reasons I mentioned before. For my worst villain, I went with the Daleks from Day of the Daleks. (laughs) 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 Because the only reason they're there is go, hey, look, the Daleks are back to try to bring some viewers to the first serial of the season. They don't need to be there. Yeah. And Don, I will allow you to pick the controller, even though I would argue he's not a villain. That's a fair argument, but to certain people in the story, he is the villain. True. It's shades of grey. That's what I liked about him. That's what makes him a good villain. (laughs) Once again, I'm going to take this in reverse order and name my worst first. And I am with Riley and Don. It's the Daleks, just because they had no business being in that story. They were dropped into it late in the game because they had to get the Daleks in somewhere and they thought the season opener was a good place. They don't really work. They don't really do much. I mean, it's very disappointing for the comeback after five years of the show's greatest villains. And it just doesn't really work. My favorite, I'm actually going to go with the Marshall as well. Not so much Jaeger, but I think (laughs) the Marshall's spiral into craziness (laughs) over the course of the story is really something to behold. You know, initially he just doesn't want the Galactic Empire to withdraw from Solos. And by the end, he's declaring himself Emperor of Solos or whatever he's going to call himself, kidnapping Earth officials and deciding they're just going to colonize it and that, you know, everyone who comes, he's just going to force them to stay. He's just bonkers by the end. And I really, really enjoy that. He's a lot of fun and completely crazy. So that's my pick. Next up, we have my personal favorite categories. We have the award for Best Director and, of course, the Richard Martin Award for Worst Director, also known as The Dicky. And for this one, our nominations are Paul Bernard, who directed both Day of the Daleks and The Time Monster, Lenny Main for The Curse of Peladon, Michael Bryant for The Sea Devils, and Christopher Barry for The Mutants. Riley, we will start with you. 
Best Director, I'm picking Christopher Berry for The Mutants. He just goes for it. So many different sets, crazy CSO. Best used in a kind of appropriate way, and that cliffhanger where the whole of the ship was blown out was something else. <laughs> he uses a lot of lateral movement on his shots, and he did that weird distorting lens for one of the shots in Sonergard's room after the volcanic eruption. Or maybe it was just out of focus. Either way, he threw the kitchen sink at it, and you gotta <laughs> admire that boldness. As for the dicky, I will go with Paul Bernard for the time monster. I didn't think he did a bad job. We have to pick someone, but there was some absolute bizarre choices here that I could not figure out. Obviously, he's trapped by the writing, but he could have at least vetoed the Kronos design, at least. Agreed. Okay, Julie, you're up next. For my best director, I'm going with Lenny Main from The Curse of Peladon. Primarily, that fight sequence that the Doctor has. Guess what? Director has choice of whether or not music is played or not during certain scenes, and he made the right choice of having no music played at that point in time. And also the close-ups. I really enjoyed the close-ups that he decided to do in The Curse of Peladon. That was my favorite. My least favorite, the Dickie, is also Paul Bernard, because not only in The Time Monster, we can go through all that if we want, but also in Day of the Daleks, he was the one that came up with that stupid three-wheeler chase scene <laughs> that, while it wasn't my least favorite scene of all time, it definitely puts it in there for why he's not a best director. Also, the fact that they've made so many updates to that serial to make it better, so to speak, probably doesn't bode well for him. Yeah. All right, done. Best director for me was Lenny Main for Curse of Peladon. For all the reasons Julie just covered, plus all of the uh, the model work and the scenes on the cliffs in the first episode. She's yes. a very atmospheric serial and did an amazing job. And for me, the Dickie goes to, once again, Paul Bernard. And yes, it's specifically for that stupid three-wheeler scene. <laughs> because the three-wheeler scene could have worked, but the way it shot... It looks so small and like you could run over them or you could go around them, but you keep turning around and it just makes no <laughs> sense. So, yeah, you, you were in the dicky for that one, Paul. Yeah, I'm also going to give the dicky to Paul Bernard. <laughs> the three-wheeler chase, I mean, it was John Pertwee's request to use those vehicles. He could have said no. He could have actually asserted control as director. He, as Don said, could have shot that better. And when it came to the Time Monster, there were a few things he did well. I already praised his direction of, for want of a better term, all of the time fuckery. But equally, <laughs> he signed off on the design for Kronos. And it's like, dude, yeah, really? I don't think anyone was necessarily that bad. I think in terms of direction, this season was pretty strong, but he was the one who had more questionable choices than anyone else. As for best director... I'm also going with Christopher Barry for all of the reasons Riley mentioned, good use of CSO, some great shots, but also what he did in his use of a quarry. Piping in all of that mist and actually making the surface of Solos looking like an alien planet. I genuinely think it's one of the best uses of the quarry that we have seen in the show so far That's fair. and possibly will ever see. And oh my gosh. I'm not joking on that. Best oh. use of a quarry. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then that leads us into our final categories, best and worst use of music. Riley, we will, as always, start with you. 
best use of music goes to Tristram Carey for The Mutants, because out of all my notes, I mentioned that I really enjoyed the Overlord tune slash jingle thing that they play on the ship. I really enjoyed that. Very funny, but also had a good kind of meaning behind it. Worst use of music is that bizarre victory jingle that plays out for Ruth and Stu and the Time Monster. That just felt incredibly out of place. Yeah, almost felt comical. Mm-hmm. Julie. I struggle with two, so I'm going to choose two. My favorite is the time monster for when we first get to Atlantis and they're in the throne room. I really enjoyed it. We got some actual classical music, we'll say, not just our synthesizer. So I really enjoyed that. And then again, I've already briefly mentioned it, but in the Curse of Peladon, again, knowing when to play music and when not to play music. So having that fight scene and not playing music at the same time, I thought was probably the best choice that was made across all of these. Worst choice of music is going to be the Sea Devils. Yet again, like with the Silurians, there I had some issues with knowing the difference between what was the score and what was the soundscape. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. I had a feeling that might be where you would go, Julie. I don't uh, know why. Yeah, shouldn't be a surprise. Don, you're up next. For me, the best music actually, or the best use of music, technically, was in the Time Monster. Because aside from a few moments that Riley already mentioned, it seemed like like Dudley had his groove back and was having fun with it and wasn't just making noise. We had some interesting music during you know the car chases, the Atlantis scenes. It seemed like he was actually paying attention to the serial, which was nice. The worst music? <laughs> yeah, probably the Sea Devils. <laughs> You know what, Don? You've just gone ahead and stolen my answers. <laughs> Once again, I was going to say the time monster just because we get some melody and it's not just Dud as his cat running up and down the synthesizer. Yeah. <laughs> and then I can kind of see what they were trying to do with the Sea Devils and do something a bit weird and avant-garde. I just don't think it worked very well. And I know from the correspondence we've had, a lot of people out there seem to really enjoy it and seem to like it and are of the opinion it fits with the story. It's not for me. I'm glad you mentioned that, Anthony, because it's about time that that cat got its credit, you know? <laughs> I just want to throw out there that me being the person who is playing music since the sixth grade and being in marching band for eight years, there's a reason why I harp on the music a lot. And that's one of the reasons. I want to hear flutes. I want to hear oboes. I want to hear bass clarinets. And it was so nice to hear that in the Time Monster. Julie's all about the woodwind. Absolutely. Unless you get a French horn, then French horn trumps all. Well, that concludes our awards. We're going to quickly look back at our various scores and metrics from the season. Don, we'll start with you. In terms of scoring, your top score went to the Curse of Peladon. While you named the Sea Devils as your favorite, you actually gave the Curse of Peladon 9.5. If I recall correctly, oh. that's because you thought I was going to give it a low score and you wanted to balance me out. I didn't <laughs> name it as my favorite. I said it was probably overall the best. <laughs> <laughs> and then at worst, you gave the Mutants and the Time Monster that tied for bottom for you at 6.5. Which is not bad. I mean, let's be oh. fair. Those are not bad scores at all. Not bad at all. Julie, the highest you gave was actually to the Sea Devils. You gave that an 8.5. Ah. <laughs> and you actually gave Day of the Daleks an 8 Whoa. while you named it your least favorite. What is happening? The <laughs> one you rated the lowest was the Mutants with a 7. Okay, it was a very close call. Okay. I mean, 7 and 8. I'm not feeling so bad. 
Riley, I know you now actually take note of your scores as you're going. So no surprise, your top rated one was the Sea Devils with 8.5. Your bottom was Day of the Daleks with a 6. Yep. Pretty good spread there. Again, nothing really poor for any of us. Like I was saying, this season, it's hard to pick a true worst story. We've had so many really, really bad serials. And this one, it's just kind of like the one that is a little bit below average is the worst. That's not bad at all. And then my high scores, I gave 8.5 to both Day of the Daleks and the Sea Devils and a 6.5 to the Time Monster. So again, only a two point spread there. So when we average everything out, our top score went to the Sea Devils, 8.5. Then the Curse of Peladon, 8.25. Day of the Daleks, 7.75. Time Monster with 7. And then in last place, the Mutants with 6.88. And that gives us a season average of 7.68, which... If you look at our previous season averages, this is the highest we've had in the entire show so far. I'm not surprised, actually, because, again, how consistent it was. Yeah. You heard it here first. Best season of classic Doctor Who for now. That's not what that meant. (laughs) Please do not take those numbers quite so seriously. Yeah, don't. But just to put that in kind of our top four so far, our highest scoring has been season nine, followed by season eight, then season two and then season seven. Pertwee's doing well because his era is so consistent in the writing and the direction and so many other attributes. So even when we have a story that one of us, or even most of us, don't enjoy, like The Ambassadors of Death, where I think I was the only one who gave that a high score when we did season seven, there are elements that bring it up for everyone and just that consistency really helps the Pertwee era. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they knew exactly what they wanted to do with the show. At the beginning, they were still trying to figure out how exactly is this show going to work. Now they know exactly what they want to do, and they're hitting that time and time again. Exactly. Okay, looking at our metrics, we only had two instances of Pertwee's gurning, which is significantly down. Season 8 had seven. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this gives us a series total so far of 13 instances of the Pertwee gurn <laughs> across 14 stories. In terms of the camp count, we gave an additional seven points over the course of the season. So five in the Curse of Peladon for Alpha Centauri. (laughs) And two points in the Mutants, which I think was for the Marshal just being so over the top. And that now gives us a series total of 98.5. And us giving seven over the course of the season is the highest we've given in one season since season four. Whoa. (laughs) <laughs> where we gave an entire 10 points to Professor Zara for nothing in oh. the world can stop me now. <laughs> I'm always going to find a way to do that. <laughs> okay, I'll explain later. We had two instances this season, once in the Sea Devils and once in the Time Monster, which doubles our series count from two to four. Good going there. And of course, our favorite quarry query. <laughs> a good friend of mine, Cy Hunt, actually let me know that we had missed one. There was a quarry all the way back in the Myth Makers in season three. So that got added to our total series count. And there was one instance of a quarry in the Mutants. So we have now had 14 quarries in the show to date. <laughs> that brings us on to some questions from social media. We will start with a heavy hitter. The Whovian Gal, our friend from Instagram, asks... Pertwee is often characterized as an establishment or Tory doctor, but season nine is full of stories that reflect Barry Letts' liberal politics. Compared to the other doctors that you've seen, would you consider three to be a more progressive or conservative doctor? 
I one think it's unfair to even call him the establishment doctor. Reason being is that, yes, he has to work with unit. It's because he's stuck on Earth. What else is he going to do? I never really looked at him as being a Tory doctor. So it's really hard for me to say that he's really progressive or conservative. I just think he's the doctor. I try not to look at it as progressive or conservative. I think that anyone that dresses like a 60s Vegas magician and talks about (laughs) seeking out a hermit to ask them what the secret of life is doesn't sound very conservative to me. In terms of characterization, I do think he is a bit more conservative, but calling him the Tory doctor, especially in light of the past couple seasons, is a little bit unfair. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's a little bit of a misreading. He is exiled to Earth. He has had to turn to units to survive to an extent, as well as to try and get materials to try and repair his TARDIS. And he has adapted to navigate in society by rubbing elbows with bureaucrats and so on, a lot of whom he does mock. You know, you look at the way he deals with Chin in season eight or um, the, the bureaucrat in the Sea Devils. I think it's unfair to call him the establishment doctor and particularly unfair to call him the Tory doctor. He's done what he's had to do to survive. And the Tory doctor label came from Paul Cornell in the 90s, just trying to rile people up because he was a (laughs) massive troll. (laughs) In terms of the doctor's politics, I think I agree. I mean, there's not really a strong slant towards either. I mean, he's probably a little more liberal than he is conservative, but I think you could read him either way, depending on how you want to read him, candidly. So maybe. Next up, our friend Adam Wright asks, do you feel that season nine achieved a balance of Earth and unit-based stories versus off-world stories? Yes. 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 And it was wonderful that they did that. (laughs) Thank God. The only thing that I wish had happened is I have started to really enjoy the unit characters. I love the Brigadier. Yes, I love Benton. So I am kind of bummed that they weren't in more stories. So I wish they could find a balance of finding a way to keep them involved, even though they're not going to be kept earthbound. Notice that Julie did not mention Yates when she said I noticed she liked that. units. <laughs> I think it's heading in the right direction. I probably would have inverted it. So we effectively had three Earthbound stories in Day of the Daleks, The Sea Devils, and The Time Monster, and two off-world. I would probably feel a lot happier with two and three in terms of Earth and off-world. So maybe lose The Time Monster and replace it with something entirely off-world. To be fair, The Time Monster for the last two episodes didn't really feel much like Earth. (laughs) That's true. And we did spend some time in the future in Day of the Daleks, so I think they did a pretty good job. And we'll get a little more um, next season where we will have that ratio I was talking about, two that are a little more earthbound and three that are in space. So looking forward to that. On a similar question, our friend Rob Levy asks, in hindsight, does the team think it was better for the third Doctor to go off-world, or should his Doctor have remained on Earth for the whole era? Oh, I'm so glad he went off-world. That's it. That's the answer. It absolutely is the answer. Off-world. This show is about an adventure in space and time, not an adventure from one place in England to another place in England. (laughs) I think he should have remained on Earth the entire season working as a cashier in a fast food restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm in agreement. I think Don used the word quater masturbation in the past to describe some of the (laughs) Earthbound adventures, and I agree. I really enjoy Quatermass as a show. I also really enjoy Doctor Who, and I would prefer the Doctor Who didn't become Quatermass. It worked for a season, but beyond that, it gets pretty stale. Next up, 
Paul Arthur, who we know on Instagram as Doctor Who 60s, 70s, 80s, says, As I'm sure you guys know, the Daleks were originally to appear in the season finale and not the season opener. Do you think we are better off with the stories that we did get, Day of the Daleks and the Time Monster, or would you have preferred to have seen the originally intended stories where Day was originally about time paradoxes without the Daleks, while Robert Sloman's The Daleks in London would have featured the Daleks sending English Civil War roundheads from history to fight UNIT? I don't really like the idea of Daleks being the ones to send the roundheads. I just think that seems off, not something necessarily that they would do. So I don't really like that idea. I love that it was the master doing it because especially getting Delgado's reactions to that was one of the most brilliant (laughs) things I've ever seen. So I don't necessarily think that they should have swapped places, but if they had done something different with the Daleks, that would have been better. I think Day of the Daleks would have been improved by not having Daleks. (laughs) I think it would have made it a stronger story on its own and given a potential for there to be a recurring villain in, say, the Ogrons. But I don't necessarily think that the Daleks in London from that one sentence description sounds like it would have been a good story. So I think maybe use them better somewhere else. I think if we're given an option of all or nothing, so we either have Day of the Daleks and the Time Monster, or we have time paradoxes without the Daleks and Daleks in London, and you can't mix and match or you can't put the Daleks elsewhere, I think what we got was a better prospect. As Don, you already said, Daleks sending roundheads just doesn't make a lot of sense. They would just go in and exterminate the unit guys if they were going to send someone to fight unit. I don't think that's a good concept. So agreed. I like what we got. I agree with what everyone was saying here. It's complete agreement. I have nothing else to add. (laughs) Cool. Nathan Laws asks, I think everyone agrees that it's better for the character and the series if the Master doesn't appear in every story in the season. However, do you think either of the Master stories in Season 9 were as good of a showcase of his character as his best in Season 8? Nothing can compare to the demons. I think that was really my favorite Master performance. But I do think that even though he isn't in every single serial, he still gives a really strong performance. I don't really think that there was any misses on this front. I guess that answers that. It's one of those things where anytime he's in a serial, Delgado is going to steal it. He's going to just take every scene he's in and run away with it and you'll never see it again. So even if maybe the stuff he's in in season nine isn't as good as what he's in in season eight, he's still really good. It's always fun to see him show up and chew the scenery. You know, jumping off that point, my feeling is that I enjoyed him more in season nine than in season eight because it's just the right amount. It's like ice cream. It's delicious, but you really... You want to enjoy it. You want to have some time away from it so you can really appreciate it more. To get hit over and over and over again, just eating ice cream after ice cream after ice cream, it's just, I mean, it's still good. It's still ice cream, but it's good to have just the right levels. It's like we were talking about with the Daleks. You don't want to bring them back just for anything. You want to bring them back for something amazing. With the Master, you don't want to put them out there all the time, even though he could pull it off. You want to like make people appreciate more, make them want more, always have them wanting more. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I do think with season nine, though, one aspect of his character that we hadn't seen in season eight was his seductive techniques, basically. (laughs) (laughs) You must obey me. Obey my love. The the way he uses his good looks and his charm to manipulate Queen Galea in The Time Monster is wonderful. And that's an aspect of his character we just haven't seen before. So I think that's a great little showcase of his character. If they'd put that in season eight, I think my answer would be no. But we see something new in him here. And I like that. Nick Rutherford asks kind of the inverse question, where he says, do you think the Master's presence could have added something positive to the three stories that he wasn't in this season? I'll be very quick. To the Dalek story? No. To Curse of Peladon? No. To the Mutants? No. Answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't quite as quick. I think you could have summed that up a little bit faster. I mean... Maybe in Day of the Daleks, if he was the main bad guy behind it, and that's a very, very maybe. But no, otherwise, I think what Riley said is right. You just want to give a little bit. You don't need too much. I think he could have been fun in The Curse of Peladon, maybe pulling the strings behind the scenes with Hepesh. But beyond that, no, I I would agree. Maybe if he was Arcturus the entire time? He's just inside the little box underneath yes, him like yes. a little puppet. Just sweating profusely because he's just too cramped and too hot. He's trying to like move these little joysticks to try to move. I would explain why Arcturus is in such a foul mood the entire time. <laughs> I mean, I have no reason to answer this question. I feel like I already answered it before. You need a sprinkle of fine dusting of the powerful master throughout a cereal. Don't put it in every single dish. <laughs> Next up. Bibble Bobble, which is a great name, that's their Instagram handle, asks, how did you feel about the different uniforms for unit? Better or worse? And I might be the only one who cares about this. I was about to I say, didn't God, care. I, feel so- <laughs> <laughs> I feel so bad. I'm like, they had different uniforms this year? <laughs> Let's be honest. You know what my answer is going to be, right? My answer is, I honestly haven't noticed the uniforms. Yeah. Except for yeah. that one time when Benton wasn't wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going there. Uh, <laughs> so, as I guess our resident military nerd, nerd yeah, <laughs> I actually liked the transition. That this season they were wearing a much more traditional British military uniform rather than those kind of jumpsuity uniforms they'd been wearing since the invasion. I think it works. I like them better. I hear that the actors did not like them as much, but hey, I think traditional works better. Next up, we have a couple of slightly more generic questions, so I'm going to put a little spin on them to make them a bit more relevant to Season 9. Kasturbarusa asks, if you could pair one past companion with the third Doctor, who would it be? And for the spin, I want you to think about that through the lens of Season 9 stories. Oh, that's such a shame because I, I had an idea of what I wanted to answer. My answer was, and if it's only if I could have the seventh season third Doctor... I would choose Jamie just so they can get into a fist fight. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one of my answers was Jamie because he just point out all the times that the doctor was a dick. (laughs) That would be why I would mention Ian, because I don't think he would take the third doctor's crap in earlier seasons. For season nine, that's a lot more difficult to question. Yes. I still would like to see Barbara, even though there's not as much of a dick in it. I think there are a few instances where Barbara would keep him in line. And what I've missed a lot about Doctor Who is 
the companion driving the story forward and Barbara was always the one who was driving the plot forward. So it would be nice if she came in and it followed that same pattern where a lot of things happen because of Barbara. I think if you want a companion who's going to fight the Doctor, you should look no further than Ben. (laughs) Ben would absolutely lump him. Oh, God, that'd be good. I think I would want to see probably Jamie and Zoe, just because I love them as a pair. And I don't know how well they would work in these stories, but I would still love to see it. Or Vicky, just because I love her. So, you know. I just feel like the third Doctor really needs, I mean, I know I made a joke about it, but I think he really needs a companion that will get up in his face and straight up challenge him. That would just find such an interesting conflict to see. I'm imagining Vicky in The Mutants. And yeah. her mm. leading the Salonians to yeah. revolution yep. against the overlords. I think that would work well. You're right, Don. That or uh, I think Curse of Peladon, it might be interesting as well, because you've got that fight between tradition and progress. And Imagine Peladon hitting on Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's meant to be like 16, so <laughs> a little creepier than Joe. Well, I mean, Peladon, he, he is a little creepy. True. He does like to hit on ladies by referring to his mother. He's homeschooled. Give him a break. <laughs> yeah, he is. As our headcanon said, though, Joe did get a nice pantsuit out of it. That's true. <laughs> I forgot about that. I don't know why that's so funny to me. Our last question from social media, and then I do have one more from me, but our last social media question comes from the Instagram user, Eve is better than you. How oh dare. I know, right? She just asks, thoughts and feelings on Joe as a character? Question mark. So I know we've previously talked about that at the end of season eight. So again, I want to put a little spin on this of, do we think Joe has progressed as a character and has a group, have our opinions of her changed over the course of season nine? I mean, maybe. I like Joe. I mean, she's not brilliant, but she wasn't supposed to be. I like the fact that she is, for the most part, very optimistic in the face of danger. Sometimes she gets scared, but she doesn't just scream all the time. She tries to think of a way to get out of it. I really like the way she was sort of leading the charge of figuring out what's going on in the Curse of Peladon. And I think her character is helping to bring out from the writers that softer side of the third Doctor. And I like that. I kind of feel that Joe, and this is not necessarily a negative statement. I just don't necessarily think that the character has changed, but I don't think she had to. I think that, like Don was saying, it brought out something better than the Doctor, but I don't want to judge her based off of how someone else was. I just want to say she was always an open, brave, true of heart person, you know, and a pure soul. I don't think she needed to move to anything better than where she already was, in a way. I think it was less of Joe developing as a character as opposed to the writers deciding that she needed to do other things. And that's where I enjoy Joe more as a character and it's not because that she herself has changed in her core it's because the writers were like oh we should probably give her something to do and not have her be the damsel in distress or sideline her for an entire serial yeah I think I agree they suddenly found stuff for her to do and it reflects on her character much better and we've commented several times across the season about how much more competent she seems and I think that was always there 
And Julie, I know you already lamented the scaling back of the unit crew this season, but I think that gave Joe a bit more breathing room for the character to actually go ahead and shine. It's allowed the writers to actually focus on her rather than having to give parts to Benton and Yates and the Brigadier and Joe and the Master and the Doctor. I mean, first off, Yates shouldn't be a part of the equation anyway. (laughs) That's besides the point. I do see where you're coming from, though. It's that kind of crowded concept, which works if you have a truly ensemble show, but that's not the point of Doctor Who at this point in time. The final question, and this comes from me. So at the end of last season, we were posed the question around why do we think so many people like the third Doctor when our experience up until that point had caused us to repeatedly label him a dick? (laughs) So I want to ask that question again with another season under our belt, where I think we've all acknowledged that he's mellowed and in Riley's words, he's become cool. I think I will take a stab at this and I'll put it in a analogy that I believe that Pertwee would appreciate. Pertwee played the doctor. I always make a joke about he wanted him to be James Bond. He played him originally as the Sean Connery James Bond. Not to say that I don't like Sean Connery as James Bond. I do. But that James Bond was a very gruff very curt individual. This season, he's starting to play James Bond more like Roger Moore, more charming, jokey, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that is, I can see that is something why people like about him. And that's the thing that I'm appreciating from him now. It's partially that if we're going to use the James Bond approach to that. But I think it's, we've talked about it a lot, I think. He's been mellowed down a bit. He's given a lot more of these character moments with Joe that we had normally seen with other doctors. And I also believe that because of the consistency of the stories, that it helps people have a good regard for him because they don't remember these really god-awful stories. (laughs) They just remember everything as being good. No, I I think that has something to do with it. Oh, I agree. I agree. That's a good point. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. And especially if those earlier stories were what you grew up on, you probably didn't even notice the doctor's behavior. And so your impression of what he was like is going to be, you know, vastly different from us because we're watching all these stories for the first time. So you definitely get a different impression. And I'm not saying anyone's, you know, liking the third Doctor for the first two or three seasons is wrong. It's just there it is. We had a different impression from it. And now that the writing has changed, the performance has also gone along with the writing. I think we can appreciate him more, but I don't think that invalidates our previous impressions either. I would agree. We've seen this Doctor soften and become a lot warmer. And I think this was 50 years ago. And you look at fans of a certain age who have dominated Doctor Who fandom for a long time, Pertwee was their first Doctor, and they may not even remember the earlier seasons. So what they probably remember, for the most part, is this warmer version of the character. And for those of us who grew up on repeats and had access to the whole thing, we had that hindsight of actually getting through it all, forming opinions after seeing everything, and coming back and basically excusing the gruffness of the character in his first two seasons because we know what he becomes. I think for this team, particularly for Julie, who had never seen any of this before, and Don, whose classic Doctor Who experience is spotty. Yes. 
<laughs> How much of the Pertwee era had you seen before we started this, Don? I think I'd seen maybe one serial. So I, I did not have a wide net from which to draw. So in watching everything in sequence and opining on it with every single story, those first two seasons with the character are a little rough. And we don't start seeing that warmer side to him until now. And I think it's going to be incredibly interesting in two seasons time when we do our full Pertwee era retrospective to get a handle on what everyone thinks with the entire era in hindsight. So more to come. That brings us to the end of our season nine retrospective. We will be back next time round when two familiar faces from the past return to us as we kick off season 10 with The Three Doctors. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And as always, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The James Bond Approach, was recorded on Wednesday the 26th of January 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, fandom doesn't have to dictate what stories you do and don't like. We enjoyed the Time Monster, and we're sticking to our guns on that.